Mid-market-sized businesses are where the true economic action in business really is. They are nimble and agile. They're factories of growth, they lead in innovation, and they're early adopters of tech. These enterprises need the right tools, support and environment to flourish. But sadly, they're often overlooked and undervalued. Not here though. This is the Mid-Market Matters podcast, and I'm your host, Craig West. We'll explore pain points, growth strategies, and how to find the competitive edge. Welcome to SME Radio. In this episode of Mid-Market Matters, we're going to talk about the mid-market specifically. We're going to talk about some latest research, and we're also going to talk about the effect of COVID-19, which we're right in the middle of at the moment. Importantly today, we're joined by Thomas Stewart. Thomas is the director of the National Centre for the Mid-Market at the Ohio State University, obviously, in the USA, and he's joining us today. Thomas, welcome and thank you for joining us. Craig, glad to be with you. Let's start with a bit of background. How do you end up being the director of the National Centre for the Mid-Market? Oh, you know, in all of these things, it's sort of like it's sort of like looking at the titles of Star Wars. Things scroll up and they seem inevitable only in retrospect, but you could never have foreseen them 20 years before. The job that led me straight into this one was working at Booz and Company, where I was the chief marketing and knowledge officer. Uh, before that, I was at Harvard Business Review, which I ran. I was the editor-in-chief and, and the managing director of Harvard Business Review. Before that, I was at Fortune. But I came to the National Center for the Middle Market at the time when the NCMM, as we call it, or the center, uh, was looking to expand its operations, sort of bring in you know, somebody as an executive director to, to grow the organization. And it just seemed like the right fit. Booze was in the process of being sold to PwC, a, a happy sale for many of them. But, you know, when one of those things happens, you think plan A is to become indispensable. Plan B is to think about plan B. This this opportunity swam into my view. And what I love about it is I've got one foot in academia and another foot in practice. And that's a place where I've always been very comfortable being, um, sort of thinking about what works in theory and what works in practice and vice versa and what doesn't work in one place or one place or in the other and sort of trying to find that combination of what's rigorous and what's relevant has always been where I have found myself um, happiest. It's a really interesting combination. You talk about rigorous and relevant and I think, you know, the academic obviously brings the rigor and the discipline and the research, et cetera, and the practical brings the relevance. So, it's unusual to find people that have got that combination. In fact, you often find people that are primarily academics and they're very rigorous and they do a lot of research, but in some cases when they try and put into practice, it doesn't work very well and vice versa, of course. It's an interesting combination. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is the United States there was created in the 19th century, a series of what were called land grant universities. And it was actually a federal government program designed to create higher education out in the wild frontier or in the newly domesticating frontier. And these universities were created and some of them, one of them, Cornell is in the Ivy League, but many of the great state universities in the United States were land grant universities, which were founded with this mission of bringing higher education, but also providing something practical. So many of them, for example, have agricultural schools. Many of them have have other sort of specifically practical application. Let's take research. Let's make sure that it is practical. And that was part of the 
um, I guess the the domestication and the uh, of the American frontier in the 19th century. Ohio State is one of those land grant universities. So it's kind of a wonderful combination where if anybody ever gets too precious and academic, you can say, don't forget we're a land grant university. And if they ever get too informal, they you say, don't forget we're a major research university. And so you you have that opportunity to course correct one or the other because you know left by themselves they'll go off in directions that aren't necessarily as productive as when you can bring them together so the center for the middle market is designed around opportunities challenges that mid-market companies specifically face how does that work in practice what do you actually do is it about research publication is it about practically working with business owners or a bit of both a bit of both first of all we the first question that when that happened when the center was founded or three years before i arrived was to define the middle market and we sort of took an occam's razor approach and said well the middle market is the middle third of the private sector let's set the sliders there and so we defined that and then you start looking at who they are who they are and what their impact is the first thing you discover, of course, is it's a third of the economy, so the impact is enormous. The second thing you discover is it's where the growth happens. You know, legendarily, romantically, perhaps, it's small business that is the engine of job creation and economic growth, all of which has some truth to it, but small business is also the furnace in which jobs are immolated because small business fails fairly often. But in the middle, you get this interesting combination of resilience of the ability to take a punch and get back up and keep going and runway, which is to say the opportunity to grow organically and not just inorganically, but really the op- you know, th- these large, rapidly growing organizations or rapidly growing mid-sized organizations. So, so that's one of the things that's very interesting about them. And, and then you start thinking about what do they need? There are two things that they need that we sort of focus on. One is they need recognition. Most of these companies are private. Um, as I said, there's a big romance about small business. There is the the ability to create a lot of noise that big business has. But in the middle, these guys, the forgotten middle child of capitalism, just go on and do their work and often are neglected by policymakers, by the media, by City Hall, by academic researchers, by consulting firms. So there's not a whole lot of of stuff that talks about how important they are, nor is there a lot of stuff that identifies what their most significant challenges are. Just an example of this is the, the, in the area of talent. Um, middle market companies being the fastest growing companies. And this, by the way, is true, not just in the US, but we've seen data for Australia and Japan and China and the UK and Germany. Middle market companies, because they're the fastest growing, they need talent, right? They're the hungriest, they have the greatest appetite for talent, but they don't have big brands. In the United States, until this pandemic struck, we were looking at full employment. Well, I can guarantee you that the folks in Google were not wanting for a lot of applicants for jobs, but the folks in fintech and martech and health tech and other companies in the middle market were were not able to sort of find the talent that they needed. So how do you manage and plan talent strategically for a mid-sized company? You can't just take what works for 
Google or IBM or Procter and Gamble or one of those things and say, let's lop off two zeros and try this. It won't work. And that's true for strategy. It's true for innovation. It's true for supply chain management. It's true for a whole lot of areas. So, so part of what we do is try to say, you know, while we're filling this gap about the knowledge about who these guys are and how important they are, we're also trying to fill the gap about what are you going to do if you're a senior executive in one of these companies? How are you going to manage your company? What are the benchmarks? What is the knowledge you need? How, what are the frameworks that fit you that aren't translated up or down from stuff that works for smaller big business? It's quite a fascinating area, and I think it's really important for people to understand. You're talking about a third of the economy whether you're in the United States or in Australia or Japan or anywhere else, as you said, the middle market typically is that middle third. That's a massive number in most of those countries. That's a significant uh, impact on the economy. If this part of the economy is working particularly well, the economy generally will be working particularly well. If it's not, the, the counter applies. Obviously, if there's problems in the middle market, then you see that. One of the challenges that you've rightly identified is business transition. Yeah. And you've done a fair bit of research in this space. It's obviously an area I'm pretty closely connected to here. I'd be really interested in hearing, you know, what the work has shown you, what you found, and more importantly, what we should be doing um, with those mid-market businesses to help them be more successful in that transition space. Middle market companies, as I said, most of them are private. I mean, in the United States, it's about 85%. Um, Within that 85% that are private, you've got a lot of family businesses, about a third are family businesses, about another third of that 85% are private equity ownership. Uh, and as you probably know, there's a, there's a lot of intersection between private equity and family business. You know, the old man retires, mm. there's no heir or, you know, the kids don't want to do it and private equity buys it. Transitions happen within family businesses. You get the old man going to pass it on to his daughter or son. How's that going to happen? Transitions happen in the ordinary course of business. I'm just, I've got a CEO. It's time for her to retire. Let's find a new, a new successor in CEO. Transitions happen when a major investor comes in and there's a change of ownership like private, like private equity. Or transitions might come in the form of big joint venture, a transformational acquisition, instead of being acquired, I might be the acquirer. Or transitions might come in the form of restructuring. Um, business is the business is in trouble. I've got to do something. I've got to tear it apart and put it back together. We started looking at this because of a general sense, a general knowledge that that often in situations like this, mid-sized companies have big company opportunities, but small company resources. They may be rather thinly supported by advisors. They, they've, everybody's got a lawyer, everybody's got an accountant, but the lawyer you have may or may not be really sophisticated about M&A or some of these transitions. The accountant may not have experience in it. You've got a, a banker, but you might not have an investment banker and that might be relevant. So we started looking at, at this question of business transitions. First question we asked is, how often do they happen? One of the surprises that we found in the study was that they happen a lot more often than people think. And not only that, when you think about it, transitions build on one another, right? You sell the company and there's a new CEO or 
you sell the company and there's a restructuring or you restructure the company and there's a new CEO. So transitions, what like dominoes, one transition may cause another. It looks to me like transition ought to, is not a one and done thing in your life. It's not just, oh yeah, we've been through that. That's over. Let's get back to business. It's actually something that you need to plan as part of the ordinary course of business. You have to think, you know what? We need a capability of preparing for transitions, managing transitions, and succeeding in transitions. That's the first thing. And then we asked, how well prepared were you and how successful were the transitions? And here we found something interesting too. When executives said we were very well prepared for the transition, 80, more than 80% said that the transition was successful. When yeah. they said they were not so well prepared, somewhat or not very well prepared, only a third of them said it was successful. They're going to happen. And if you're not prepared, your odds of having a successful transition, they drop by base almost two thirds. And then one of the other things we learned is we go into this, what does success mean and where the problems are? When people say it was successful, what they really say, what they're really saying is the financial part of the transition was more successful than the human and customer parts of the transition. We got the money, the deal was good or whatever it was, that part worked all right. But gee, we lost three of our best people or mm -hmm. we had some real problems mm -hmm. with culture or our customers were dissatisfied and we lost people in there. We had a real struggle with that. So, you know, you double click on what success means and you find that the, the, the deal-making hard side of success is apparently easier to achieve than some of the soft sides of success, which include the people side, uh, your place in the community. And, and, you know, for many of these companies, that's important. That's, that's, that's legacy. That's why I built this company was because we're right here and this town and we're an important part of this town and I, my employees are like family. So the key thing there is what I'm hearing there is transitions are going to happen more often than you think. Yep. They're not one and done. They're ongoing and preparation is absolutely vital to make sure they're successful. Yeah. And one of the other things that's also there, we asked that when do, when do you start preparing? And one of the things we found is that is that most companies told us that they basically started preparing within a year of the transition happening. So they could see it on the horizon and say, oh, we better start getting ready for this. If you want to build a capability, you're building two things. You're building one, a set of skills and a, and a stable of the right advisors who can help you when the time comes. But you're also building some ongoing processes. Middle market company executives say, we know our key players. We know our A players. We have, we, I can tell you my can't lose key people. I'm great at that. And I suck at succession planning. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so, you know, that's an example, right? Now you put a transition coming in and suddenly your key players are saying, hey, Maybe I'll stay, maybe I won't. Have you got a plan for me in this new world? And if you haven't thought that through in advance, you're going to lose the people you don't want to lose. So I want to change tack a little bit and talk about uh, COVID-19. We're in the yeah. middle of a black swan event. It's never been seen before. It's, it's global. It's affecting everybody all around the world, including here, obviously. Um, 
what are you seeing out there? How bad is it? You know, where is it impacting most and what are people doing about it? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm in the in the red hot center of the red hot center. As you, as you know, uh, the United States is is lamentably uh, in terms of the total number of cases, the you know, the worst off in the country. It's not as bad as Spain or Italy in terms of per capita or 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 some and, and certainly in terms of death rates. But I, and I'm also speaking to you from Manhattan and right outside my window is a street where across which too many ambulances come. We haven't heard one during the course of this recording, but it could well happen. So so, wow. you know, your mileage is going to vary and Australia is in a lot better shape for now. We always have to say for now about this. But let me tell you what we did, Craig. We we went out in the last week in March, March 23rd to 25th, um, which is just about the time when it was two weeks after the World Health Organization said it was a pandemic and it was about the time of really serious, belated serious lockdowns here. And we talked to uh, 250 middle market executives and we said, so, you know, how bad is it? What's going on? And the first thing we heard was was that, you know, the impacts are 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 enormous. And how long they'll be is another question. I mean, as Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, has said, in effect, we've put the economy into a medically induced coma, right? We're stopping right now. So yeah. restaurants are closed, theaters are closed, you know, airplanes are in airports and airplanes are empty. So, so obviously there's some enormous immediate impacts. There's no revenue coming in for a lot of businesses unless you're a you know, there's some who are succeeding, but so so the impact is huge. 25% of the people we talked to said that the impact could prove catastrophic for their business. And we didn't ask them to define catastrophic. I don't think you need to, but it means like, you know. 25%. 20, one in four said it would be a catastrophic. Wow. Yep. The other thing, another interesting thing is though, is that 51% said that, this, that the biggest problem was uncertainty. They just like, we don't know what's going on. Right now, we're like in the middle of this and like, we don't know. Now, my own sense, but my spidey sense is that that uncertainty is starting to diminish. People are starting to get a little better sense of what the picture is. It's only two weeks after that, but beginning to sense. But then, so then we said, all right, so, you know, where's it hitting you? The number one thing, 86% said that there were, you know, major negative impacts on operations. Uh, 84% on projected 2020 revenue, 81% said that there were going to be impacts on hours worked, 80% said impact on employment, so, you know, not only hours, but stat number of staff, number of people, so, yeah. yeah, supply chain and working capital and cash, 76% said the impacts on working capital and cash, so, boom, you know, it's a sock in the jaw, right? The second sort of question we asked was try to get a sense of how big those impacts were and of course mm -hmm. with half of the people saying you know blah, 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 I, I i don't know what's going no, on no. nobody's got a projected revenue figure for 2020 yeah i mean if they've got sure. one they're lying you know they're, they're they're making it up they're making it up yeah yeah so but we the people we talked to were people we'd also spoken to in december so we had their projections for 2020 before corona and those people told us that they expected to grow 5.8% on the top line in 2020. Four out of five of them have said that their growth will decline. How much? They don't know. But they they, can't they tell. Yeah. Right. 80% basically said 80, 78%. Four out of five said 
you know, that said our growth is declining. These guys also expected to add 3.2% to their headcount. Two thirds of them have said that's not that's not happening. Our headcount is going to our headcount is going to shrink. Then we asked about some strategic questions. We said uh, 51% of these guys said that they plan to enter a new domestic or, or international market. So that could be, you know, going from Chicago to San Francisco or going from Denver to Adelaide. I don't know. Uh, but more than half said they plan to enter a new market. Now, 70% now say they're going to pull back on those plans. Wow. A quarter of them said that they expected to build a new plant or facility. Two-thirds said, no, nah, not so fast. We're going to put that on the shelf. We might come back, but it's deferred. To go to our earlier topic about transitions, we said, looking ahead, looking at, looking at, what, you are, at, at what you are seeing now, what is the likelihood of certain major business transitions. And some of these are kind of strategic questions. So what's happened to the likelihood that you will um, make a major transformative acquisition? More likely, less likely, no impact. And the number of people say it's less likely. I mean, it's, it's about 40% say yeah. we're less likely to make a major acquisition. About, looks like it's about, it's about uh, 25%, a little less than 20, 20% say it's more likely to make an acquisition. So basically, and the rest say it won't change. So basically, likelihood of making an acquisition, reduced. Likelihood of bringing in a major investor, reduced. Likelihood of merging with another company, reduced. Likelihood that I'll sell the business, reduced. Those three, not by as much, but the transformative acquisition, forget about it. You know, we're just, Maybe next year, but we're much less likely to do that. Then we asked about restructuring. 44% said they're more likely to restructure. Yeah. And about 15% said they're less likely. Panic is there. The panic will dissipate. People will come in a couple of months. They'll start saying, okay, what do we do now? And it looks like they're going to pull the restructuring lever. There's also a slight increase in the likelihood of a senior leadership transition. So, you know. I've had it. I'm done. I don't want to live through that again, you know, pass it on to somebody else. But they're less likely to do some of those major strategic financial moves. And they're less likely to invest. And they're less likely to expand. So so they're going to be restoring, you know, what can we do to get business back? And then in six months, maybe we'll revisit what our plans are and see what this new world is like. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because th- you're talking about a major economic shock as a result of all those findings. Yeah. yeah. They're basically, as you, I think you used the term before, you know, medically induced coma. It's almost what it is with business. So, yeah, we're going to see a lot of changes. It's pretty interesting. It's fascinating because the other thing I said, as I said, you know, right now, I think in the in the immediate impact, people are saying, we need cash. We just need to keep the, the organs going, right? How do we keep the body going? How do we work on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever we're doing to make sure that we can communicate and keep keep something going. And in the absence of revenue coming in, what do I do about cash and working capital? That's what they're working with right now. It's sort of first aid, right? You know, you're in the ambulance, you're in the ER, let's, yep. get, the, yep. let's get the patient stable. Second question, and I think that some companies are starting to think about it, is what's the world I'm going to come into? How do we recover? 
How do we recover? Now, the interesting thing is 80% of these guys told us that they believe that they can be up and running at full capacity within six months. So before we wrap up, I just want to ask you uh, one last thing, and that is your tip for middle market business owners. What's the number one thing they should be focused on right now? I'm going to have to give you two. The number sure. one thing, the number one thing is if you need to be focused on right now, it's cash. If you, you know, you gotta make sure you have enough cash yeah, to absolutely. run the business. And whether you get that from your customers, from a bank, from you know your back pocket, whatever it is, you're gonna need cash. The other thing that I think is tricky is cash comes back, customers might not, and and this is a time when. You've got to be thinking upstream and downstream to your supply chain, but you've got to be thinking about what do I do to make sure that that I can have a connection with my customers when this fades away. Cash customers, and, and for heaven's sake, human capital. I mean, people, uh, right now people are getting laid off, right? But two months ago, the biggest problem for mid-sized companies was they couldn't find enough people. If you yeah, just throw those if you throw those people to the curb and say, oh, by the way, in two months, come on back, they may thumb their noses at you. There's an interesting question about about uh, making sure that you keep your relationships with your customers and keep your relationships with your people and do the best thing you possibly can within the constraints that cash is putting on you. Thomas, thanks. We could talk for hours, um, but we Good. won't because we've got a limited time frame. But uh, thank you very much for joining us. I'd love to keep in touch with you. Might have you back in a couple of months and have a look at where we've got to as a result, hopefully, of a recovery from COVID-19. We're happy to do that, Craig. And thank you so much for for uh, having me talk. You know, that we're a US-focused organization, but the middle market is the key to growth everywhere. And so really glad to build this relationship with you. Absolutely. And I'm pretty sure there's absolutely nothing you've said that doesn't apply to Australia as equal um, in terms of how you've described it in the United States. So thank you for joining us. It's been great. And we'll uh, look forward to catching up in a couple of months time. Thank you for listening to SME Radio, proudly produced by Eagle Wave Small Business Podcasting Platform. For more great episodes like this, go to smea.org.au. Remember, if you have a story to tell, we want to share it.